We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Turning your Bibles with me today to Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter 10 for the message in this morning hour. Now today in Hebrews 10, verse number 19 and following, I'd like to expound to you in the message in this hour, the Lord leading and God giving me grace. The two participles I want to call to your mind in verse 19 and verse 21, both declaring great truths upon which we uh, base our faith and grace and uh, upon which authority we have access to approach the Lord God by the blood of the Lord Jesus. In verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, not everybody in the world has that boldness. Only we that are sheltered and purged and washed in the blood. Now, keep that in mind. God doesn't hear the prayer of wicked people. God only hears the prayers of those that are saved and who are rightly related by the new birth and by virtue of the blood. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he has uh, consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh. And having, here's my second having that I wanted to emphasize, having an high priest over the house of God. The house of God in verse number 21 is a reference to the body of Christ. Uh, we have a building of God not made with hands. The building of God not made with hands is not Tabernacle Baptist Church. It was made with hands. Nor Solomon's temple. It too was made with hands. But the building not made with hands is the body of Christ. The, the born again, the church of the living God, fitly framed together, every part redeemed by the precious blood and fit together and secured uh, 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 safely in the foundation, of course, and then secured as well otherwise as, as much as in the foundation. The body is the church, the born again, the same. Now over this body, we have an high priest. Now, all of us know who that high priest is. There's one peculiar doctrine of Baptist people that I constantly remind you of because you need to face it. Baptists believe in what we call the priesthood of every believer. The only people in the world that really believe in the individual priesthood of every believer are Baptist people. We mean by that that every believer has the right to approach God himself any time for any reason. Uh, if you need, have need to pray, you don't necessarily have to come here to the church and find me in my office and have me pray with you. Now, I'd be glad to do that if the need should arise. But actually, you can drop on your, need in your uh, knees in your home or on your job. Or you don't even have to drop on your knees. You can pray as you drive the highways, you see. And you can do that any time at home or at church or anywhere else. We believe that every believer can approach God by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we also believe that we have an high priest. Now he's not an earthly high priest. He doesn't live in Rome, nor Nashville, nor Columbia. Uh, we have a high priest in heaven. 
There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know where he is, we know who he is, and we know what he's engaged in this very moment. He's ever living to make intercession for you and I that are saved. Now having therefore brethren boldness to enter in, and then having an high priest over the church, over the body of Christ, let us therefore do three things in verse 22, 23, and 24. And if you'd like to mark them in your Bible, you have my outline right in the Bible before your eyes. Having boldness to enter in, and having an high priest uh, who is touched of the feeling of our infirmities, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who have compassion, who has compassion upon us, and who invites us to approach him uh, in, uh, in, in the merit of the, of the atoning blood, let us, therefore, draw nigh, second, let us, therefore, hold fast, and third, let us, therefore, consider one another. Now let's examine these three uh, therefores, or three results of having this great high priest and this great access that I enjoy uh, right into the holiest of all, right where the throne of God is, if you please, at, at the mercy seat now. When I approach God in prayer and lay my petitions out at the feet of the Savior in prayer now, in a real sense, I'm approaching right into the throne room where Almighty God is, and I would never tread presumptuously. I would never go into the presence of God upon my own merit, God forbid. But when I go into the presence of God, I do so by the blood of Jesus. And when I approach God through the blood of Jesus, I therefore have boldness. And I therefore also have the assurance that my high priest opens his ear, his ear is not deafened, he reaches his arm down, his arm is not shortened, he hears my prayer, he's able to answer abundantly. Now because of this great advantage me and you have, in this eternal high priest, the Lord Jesus, the captain of our soul and the savior of our lives, let us first of all draw nigh. Now I want you to note the qualifications in verse number 22 of drawing nigh unto God. Not just anybody. You'd be surprised how many people today who say, Lord, Lord, who can't draw nigh because they don't meet the conditions required in verse number 22. Now, and no man can draw nigh unto God except he meet the conditions and the qualifications set down in this particular verse. And to try to come to God any other way would be a waste of your energy and time. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me when I pray. Now that's a fact. Now you may be born again. I may be born again. And yet if I become disobedient, a carnal, a worldly, are faithless, then God doesn't hear me when I pray. If, I, if I'm to get my prayers heard and answered, then I must draw nigh first with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If you draw nigh doubting, you disqualify yourself. A true heart, an undivided heart, a heart that's single toward God. And to come to God with a divided heart is to disqualify your prayers and God cannot and will not hear you if you come with a heart that's divided or not true in its devotion to the Lord.
Now, I think all of us in this building, with your Bible open, and you're looking at the text in your Bible, I think you ought to look into your heart right now and ask yourself honestly and answer sincerely, is my heart truly undivided before God? Let us draw nigh with a true heart of full assurance of faith. To do otherwise is a waste of your prayer energy and a waste of your prayer time. If your heart is not single, if your heart is not sanctified, if your heart is not devoted, if your life is divided, the loyalties of your life are divided. No man can serve both God and mammon. You can honestly serve God on Sunday and the world on Monday and draw nigh with a, with a true heart of full assurance of faith. Can't be done. It's a man that serves God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A man that sets out to please God above everything else in the world. That's the man that's invited in verse 22 to draw nigh unto God. But not only must we have a full, a heart of full assurance, a true heart of full assurance and faith, but also having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You know, it's amazing how your conscience can become disturbed. And it's a blessing as well. It doesn't take a great deal for God's people to become upset in their consciences. You that are saved by the grace of God have certain uh, responsibilities and duties toward God and toward yourself and toward your church and toward this world, in fact. Now, for you to become disloyal to God or disloyal to your church or disloyal to the world or become worldly in your conduct or contacts, your conscience immediately reminds you of that act of disloyalty or that act of sin. And there'd be no way in the world for a born-again man to sin and at the same time have a heart that doesn't disturb him, a conscience that doesn't disturb him. As surely as you sin, your conscience is violated and it, it convicts you and condemns you. And a man just can't possibly come to God and draw nigh to God, as all of us need to draw nigh to God, without that pure heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. And if your conscience today is not purged from any evil in your life, if your conscience condemns you and reproves you and rebukes you because of an attitude, because of a conduct, because of a deed, because of a word, because of a tie with the world, because of some wicked thing that's crept into your life, and your conscience is stirred and disturbed and hurts you at this moment, then you're now disqualified. And you may need to pray and can't pray. You may need to draw nigh and can't draw nigh. You may need to hear God, have God answer your prayer and God can't answer your prayer because you've disqualified yourself. Let us draw nigh with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Second, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And third, having our bodies washed with pure water. A true heart and uh, a pure body, a pure water, it says in the, in the last clause. And the last qualification in verse 2, 
is as important as the first two. Having our bodies washed in pure water. Now it'd be an impossible thing to separate your conscience from your body. Your conscience is as much of you as your hand to your eyes. When God made the human being as all of us are, he made us so that silent companion we call the conscience. And a man can drown it, and a man can sear it, a man can disobey it, a man might even regulate it, but he can't destroy it. No more than you could destroy your hand, or destroy your eyes, or destroy your body. Man is made with a conscience. Now that conscience must be pure. And the only way to make it pure is by the sprinkling, by faith, of the blood atonement of our Savior. But not only must your conscience be void of any offense, but your bodies likewise must be sanctified, purged, and cleansed in pure water. Water in the Bible is a picture and type of this book. And here's God's sanctifying element. I'm washed by the word of God. And not only must my mind and my conscience be clear and pure, but my body as well must be clean. And I'm not talking about clean with water and soap and a bath. I'm not talking about that. That ought to be also. But I'm talking about your physical uh, body being sanctified. By the word of God, your hands in, engaged in no evil, your eyes engaged in no evil, your tongue engaged in no evil, your body engaged in no immorality. It's a foolish thing to think of a man coming to God whose eyes look upon lust, whose hands steal from the poor, whose body has been joined to that of a harlot. It's a foolish thing to think of that man approaching God. He can't do it. Now he might name the name of Christ. And he may call himself a preacher or a priest. Or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. But if his body is so defiled. As I've described. That he has no right to approach God boldly. Let us therefore come to him boldly. But the three qualifications. And these three qualifications in verse 22 are as essential to you as me, are as essential to me as to you. And there's no way in the world that any one of us can approach God and draw nigh to God except we meet these three conditions. Now I come to ask you, how is your relation to God in prayer now? If your relation to God in prayer now is good, then your life is good, your body is clean, your mind is purged from an evil conscience. But if your relation to God is bad at this moment, and your prayer life is hindered at this moment, you need a dedication in your life. You need a confession, confession in your life. You need a sanctifying, and you must have that before you can draw nigh to God, as all of us must draw nigh. Now, have you thought, have you faced up to your own condition in your own life, your own heart, your own conscience, your own body? But I want to note the second letter in verse number 23. Having this great uh, high priest, let us boldly enter into the holiest. Having this high priest over the church of God, the house of God, 
Let us draw nigh, second, let us hold fast. Hold fast what? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now if I would ask for a lift of hands in this congregation today, from all of you that have made a profession of faith, and having made a profession of faith means that you're now a Baptist church member, and you've been down into this baptistry, and you give testimony that you love the Lord, and that your faith is in the Savior. That's the profession that I'm talking about. Now, sometimes the devil is going to attack that profession. And all of us have made that kind of profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. Far back as I can remember, I can hear Baptist preachers talk about making a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's what it means. To make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus means to confess him as Lord and as Savior in your life. I've done that. Many of you have. By far the most of you have made that kind of profession of faith in your life. Now, I said the devil's going to attack that. He's going to try to upset that. He's going to seek to have you abandon your profession of faith. He'll come to you in a thousand ways and suggest to you that your profession of faith was not like it ought to be. You didn't come to God like you ought to have come to God. You didn't come to God like Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so came to God. Therefore, you need to abandon your profession of faith. And uh, you're not really saved at all. Just abandon it and give up hope. You're not saved. You just think you are. Now, when those nagging thoughts come to you and come to all of us, they do in the span of your lifetime. I want you to remember the exhortation of verse 23. Let us hold fast our profession of faith in Jesus without wavering. Now, there are times in your life when you're going to be made to doubt whether you're truly saved or not. It's the business of the devil, the adversary, to try to seek you, uh, seek to have you doubt that you're tr truly a born-again person. Somebody will stand in this pulpit or some other pulpit and give their experience. And when you hear that experience, you'll begin to measure your experience by that that was related from the pulpit or over the radio. And the old devil, if yours doesn't fit right in and dovetail right in with somebody else's experience, the old devil will say, now, because you didn't feel that way, or because you didn't weep that way, or because you were not saved in that same place, or because you didn't have this experience or the other experience, therefore, you're not saved at all. And if you listen to the devil, you're headed for trouble right at that point. He'll seek to make shipwreck of your faith, and he does so by causing you to abandon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ scripturally and sincerely, as honestly as you know how, you better let that stand. You better let it stand. You can make none more, more secure. You can make none greater. If you made it honestly, intelligently, and sincerely, you can make no profession greater than the one you've got. Now, not all of us are saved in exactly the same fashion. 
Not all of us respond to salvation in exactly the same fashion. In our Sunday school lesson last Sunday, we saw those Jews that came back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild Solomon's temple. When they got back to Canaan, they were so elated until they made a, a, a feast of the tabernacle sacrifice. And they, were, they thought the millennium had come. The feast of the tabernacle is a feast especially for the millennial kingdom. And they were so blessed until they thought the millennium had come. And so they made and observed the feast of the tabernacle. And they, they, when they laid the foundations, some of those old elders of old ancient men, old men, hair ripened for the grave, began to weep aloud. And they cried aloud and shed tears aloud. They were unashamed as the tears stained their faces. While on the other hand, some of the same 42,000 that came back to build the Solomon's temple shouted with a loud voice, they didn't shed a tear. Now they were both responding. And no doubt in my mind about what there were some who neither shouted aloud nor wept. You have three groups of Jews, all of them glad to be home, three of them responding differently one from another. Now, if you're going to say, all of you are going to have to weep, you're going to foul things up. If you're going to have to say, all of them must shout loud, you're going to foul things up. Or if you're going to say, everybody must be quiet and hold your peace, you're going to foul things up. No, we don't respond in the same way. And sometimes our experiences may not coincide exactly with the experience of somebody else. There's one common thing about the experience of every born-again man. You know what that common thing is? You know who that common thing is? Jesus. My hope is built upon nothing less than Jesus' name and righteousness. I may not weep like you weep, but I'll lean upon his arm. I may not shout like you shout, but I'll lean upon his arm. I may not respond like you responded, but I'm trusting in his name and in his work at Calvary. There's a common ground that all of us meet and that common ground is Calvary and the Son of God the Lord Jesus now you can't be saved apart from faith in Jesus but we respond to that faith in different ways and don't you let the devil destroy or make shipwreck of your profession if you made a profession hold on to it let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering now, nothing would thrill the devil more than to cause you to waver right at that point. And if the trumpeter give an uncertain sound, how does God's people know when to go to war? No, no. I, I, your testimony will never amount to anything if you waver at this one particular point. I've seen some good men. I've seen preachers have their testimonies destroyed when they wavered right at this one point. And I've seen many good church members in my life have their testimonies hindered when they wavered right at this one particular point. Now the devil do everything he can uh, to destroy your foundation and, and, and to kill your confidence in your profession and to discourage you in your profession. But having a high priest who knows us better than we know ourselves, let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. Just don't, don't be moved. Like a tree planted by the river, 
I will not be moved. Stand by that profession of faith. Now, you remember in the same Hebrew epistle, we are exhorted back in chapter number eight and nine not to lay again the foundations. Uh, we are we're exhorted in the same Hebrew epistle to leave the rudiments of our faith. What is the rudiments of your faith? The rudiments of your faith are the first things. And Paul lists among those things baptism and uh, repentance and so on. Now we're to put those in our foundation. No foundation is proper without baptism. No foundation is proper without repentance. No foundation is proper without faith. You put all those things in your foundation. But once you put those in the foundation, then you're to leave the elements, the rudiments of your faith and go on to build the spiritual house upon the foundation you put down. Now, if you keep uncovering that foundation, if the devil comes to you and says, well, you just, you, you, you haven't responded right. You just don't have salvation. And you believe that. Now, there may be cases when that may be true. But in most cases, it's a lie of the devil. And when the devil tells nine out of ten of you that you're not saved, he's trying to discourage you. He's nagging at you. He's trying to destroy you. And if you tear up that foundation and try to put it down again, you're going to make shipwreck out of your faith. As sure as you do. Now put the foundation down and then hold fast that profession of faith without wavering. You'd never get a spiritual house built until you anchor the foundation and you say, this is it. I love Jesus. I'm trusting him as my savior. Brother so-and-so had an experience different from mine, but I'm saved. I believe by the grace of God and I'm going to trust the Lord. I had a preacher friend of mine. He told me this story himself. He was troubled a great deal with doubt. Even after he, in the ministry, he was troubled with doubt. I had a, had a preacher drive 200 miles one day and found me in my meeting where I was preaching and found me in the motel and sat in my motel room two hours talking about the thing that I'm preaching about now. The devil was trying to get that preacher boy to believe that he wasn't saved and just about to ruin him. And this has been six or eight years ago and now he's passing a great church. He held on to his profession. He was pastor in that same church then. It's triple in size. When he got his foundation secure, and God saw that he wasn't going to be moved, his church is literally tripled in size. If he'd have made shipwreck of his faith when he came to see me, he'd have probably floundered and never done anything for the Lord. But he sat in my room, and we talked and prayed and reasoned for two hours about whether the boy was saved or not. Graduate of Bob Jones University, by the way. Fine young fellow. Wonderful boy. I believe he was saved all the time. I believe it more now than I believed it then. And I believed it enough then to look him square in the eye and say, son, I believe you're saying You've got it. You've got it. You've got it. And I, I think time's proven that he really had it all the time. But anyway, a, a preacher said to me, the devil's bothered me so much. And I wonder and I worry about whether I'm truly saved or not. And he said, I prayed and seemed not to get satisfied. I read the Bible, seemed not to get satisfied. I, I talked to other people and seemed not to get satisfied. And then one day in his prayer, he said, Father, thou knowest all things and thou knowest I love thee. Brother, you plead God's omniscience when you say that. You make a great confession when you say that. When you get on your knees and say, Lord, thou knowest all things, you say a mouthful, brother. That's omniscience. That's faith. The very fact that you said that is faith with a capital F. Amen? That's what Peter said. 
when, when Jesus came to him three times and said, Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter tried to reason with the Lord, and finally he pled with the Lord and pled God's omniscience when he said, Jesus, thou knowest all things, and thou knowest I love thee. Brother, you can't plead a greater authority than that. And this preacher did that and on his knees and said, Now, Lord, if I go to hell, I'm going trust in Jesus. And then it dawned upon his soul that men don't go to hell trust in Jesus, brother. And then he could sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You may get to heaven ship-worn and battle torn and scarred by many battles in this journey but if you're saved and trust Jesus you'll make it and you may sometimes wonder whether you will or not but you will when the smoke of all the battles are cleared away I know where you'll be the soul that upon Jesus doth lean for repose I will never know never desert to its foes let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering now the old devil comes to you and says, you're not saved. The preacher is, but you're not. Brother Aiken is, but you're not. Now, these deacons are, but you're not. He's a liar. The devil's a liar. Now I believe Brother Aiken is, and I believe the deacons is. Our deacons are, and I believe I am too. But I believe you also. But don't you tell, don't you let the devil tell you you're not. He's a liar. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now look at that brackets, and I wish I had a half an hour to talk on the brackets. For he is faithful that promised. <laughs> when God put that in brackets, he kind of whispered close to my ear and said, Son, he's faithful that promised. <laughs> when, the, when the noise of battle almost gets you down, and the accusing choir of the devil almost causes you to abandon your ship and give up your faith, God whispers in the thick of that battle, he's faithful that promised. Yeah, he'll take care of it. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a preacher. I'm not going to heaven because I try to live right. I'm going to heaven because my Savior died for me on the cross. And 45 years ago, I believed that and accepted that. And it's as real now as it ever has been, getting better and better every day. I'm not expecting to lose it. Let us hold fast our profession of faith. Then I want you to note the third Let us in verse 24. Having this great high priest, let us draw nigh. Second, let us hold fast. Third, let us consider. Now I want you to examine that. There are three things that we're to consider that I want to point out to you in verses 24 and 25. And to me, this makes the church what it ought to be. And if Tabernacle Baptist Church is what it ought to be, me and you are going to have to consider one another to do three things. First, to provoke to love. Second, to provoke to good works. And third, to exhort one another to be faithful, not forsaking the Lord's house. Now let's examine those one at a time. Let us therefore, having this great high priest, let us provoke. Now the word provoke, we sometimes use that word in a bad sense in our day. Sometimes the kiddies get on your nerves and you say the children provoke me. And we use that word in a bad light, but this is a good word, the word provoke. is a good word. We don't use it very much uh, in our modern English terminology. But it's a good word. And really, the word provoke means to challenge. 
Now that word we use quite a bit and it's in good light. And when you hear the word challenge, uh, that's good. We like to hear that word. We use it oftentimes in good light. But actually to provoke is exactly the same thing as to challenge. In other words, since we have this great high priest, let us challenge one another to love. Provoke one another to love. And this is the cord that binds a church together to make it strong. To weather the storms against it as a unit. And the multitudes of storms against it as individuals. Nothing can destroy a church thus bound together with love. Let us provoke one another to love. And my whole life as I move in and out and among you as your pastor and a member of Tabernacle Baptist Church ought to be so lived that when you see me or hear me or hear about me, it ought to be in such a way as to challenge you to love one another and love God. Love one another and love God. Let us provoke one another to love. Now it's not easy sometimes to provoke people to hate. Sure, there's some people like the adversaries in our Sunday school lesson today. They tried to get in with Jeroboam and, and uh, the Jews as they tried to rebuild the temple. And they were not there to provoke one another to love. They were to sow seeds of discord and strife and discouragement. They set out to destroy. And they me uh, had a measure of success in chapter number four. God forbid we do that. But we're to challenge one another to love to forgive, to be humble and graceful and lovable. If thy brother offend thee, forgive him. How many times, Jesus? Seventy times seven. If they smite you on your cheek, turn the other. If they take your coat, give them your cloak also. If they compel you to go one mile, go with them the second mile freely. That's provoking to love. And that makes a church what it ought to be. That makes a church strong. That makes your family strong. And our mutual, our individual fellowship is strong. You know, how wonderful for brethren to dwell together in peace. Now I'm at perfect peace with these brethren. I baptized Mr. Kirby 25, 30 years ago. How long, Hubert? 30 years ago? 30 years ago. And he and I have been brethren and friends all these years, as far as I know, there's not a thing between he and me. If I wanted a favor, I'd go to him quick as I'd snap my finger. And I'd want him to do the same thing. We've lived together in peace for 30 years. I intend to be at his funeral, or you intend to be at mine. Same way with many of the rest of you boys. As far as possible, be at peace with every person in the world. Provoke one another to love. Challenge one another to love. And that makes the fellowship what it ought to be. Then second, provoke one another to good works. Challenge one another to good works. And the best way in the world to challenge one to good works is to lead people in a busy, active life to God's glory. Not wasting time and twiddling your thumbs and doing nothing, but being active and busy. Leading people into good works, into a life of usefulness. You want me to tell you one reason the Tabernacle Baptist Church has 20 odd of its children on mission fields around the world? You want me to tell you one reason? Because of Dan Truax and Mary. 
and Jack Manley and Annette. That's the reason. That's why David and his wife's fixing to go and Sandra is fixing to go. Miss Ballou is fixing to go. That's why. These missionaries have so walked among our young people until they've challenged the other young people to good work. And when they hear the story of works and labors in Jesus' name around the world, these young people get fired up and say, I want to do that too. I want to do that too. That's it. Oh, how we could put a break on that thing and come to a grinding halt by our own wicked attitude. But as long as we exhort one another to good works, then we're going to have young people stepping forward to volunteer, to labor in the fields of souls around the world. And then third, we are to provoke one another by exhorting. Not only by precept and example, but by words. To exhort would imply the use of words. I might be able to provoke without using words. Provoke to love by example. Provoke to good works by example. But when it comes to provoking to exhortation, words are necessary. And if I exhort a people, I have to use my words. So that means that my words are to be seasoned. And my words are to be, uh, are to be uh, meted out with, with understanding and, and with uh, salt and with season and with grace. We're told that our words ought to minister grace to those that hear our words. It'd be a thousand times better for you to swallow your words than to speak a harsh, unkind, untrue, slanderous word. A cutting, hurting word that would offend any little one that might believe in Jesus. Be a thousand times better those words be swallowed or never spoken. We're to exhort one another with good words, kind words, sympathetic words, understanding words. Now, this exhortation is to involve the matter of assembling together in church. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And I don't believe a man can be the example in word or deed that he ought to be who doesn't mind his faithfulness to God's house. It's not a matter of whether you think it's convenient or whether you're feeling well. It's a matter of testimony that we be found faithful in God's house. On Sunday morning, this church is filled every Sunday like it is now. And I, I'm glad it is. But we have several hundreds of our members who could be here right now who aren't. And tonight, there'll be several hundreds of you, maybe some of you now, that won't be here tonight. It ought not to be that way. And then Wednesday night in revival time, our testimonies sometimes become regulated to evil by attitude in assembling together in the house of God. Oh, what a testimony. Loyalty in God's house, in the Sunday school, in the services, in the tithing, in the choir. What it says, what it does, speaks more profoundly than words that I might be able to say from this pulpit. All right? Let's summarize it. Verse 19, having boldness to enter. Verse 21, having an high priest over God's house, over God's church. Therefore, let us draw nigh. Three qualifications meet them 
Second, let us hold fast. Don't deny your faith in the Savior. Third, let us consider one another. Don't live selfishly. Live for others. Consider the one about you. Challenge that one about you. Provoke that one about you to love, to good works, and exhort them to be faithful and loyal. May we bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we pray that, that our church might face these three practical exhortations in the Hebrews chapter 10. We bow to thank you that we have such a great high priest, Jesus, who knows our frame. And many times we fail. We need not hesitate to tell him. He knows. He understands. He starts with the feeling of our infirmities. He invites us to approach the throne of grace boldly in his wonderful name. And I pray that our people may recognize such a great high priest. And then may we set out to obey the three exhortations that I pointed out in the scriptures. Let us, let us. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.